Welcome to the podcast of the Christian Medical and Dental Association of Canada. Today's podcast features CMDA Canada's Executive Director, Larry Wortham. This podcast was recorded as a plenary session for the Canadian Hospice and Palliative Care Association's 2022 Learning Institute. We thank them for allowing us to share this presentation. Enjoy the podcast. I'm truly honored to be invited to speak with you today uh, because I have a great respect for the hospice and palliative care movement in Canada. I plan to address the concept of dignity and your role in preserving human dignity in your practice of palliative care. This is not easy for you in today's healthcare environment. The challenges you face are unprecedented. Decision makers at all levels are not making your jobs or your working conditions any easier. And sometimes you probably are tempted to question whether or not you're making a real difference in how both how you and your patients experience dignity. However, I hope that as you interact with your patients and their loved ones, you realize the vital importance of your work and have the rewarding feeling of easing their cares at a very important time in their lives. As I begin, I'd like to clarify my frame of reference a bit and tell you where I'm coming from. As Laurel said, for 10 years, I've been executive director of an organization of Christian doctors, dentists, and students from across Canada called CMDA Canada. Many of our members work in the area of palliative care. I'm an ordained deacon in the Roman Catholic Church, and part of my responsibilities as a deacon are to visit people who are sick and who are dying. So with these credentials, you can probably guess that I'm not a big supporter of MAID. However, I'm well aware that some of you actually do support MAID and may be involved in the delivery of MAID. Uh, the purpose of my talk is not to argue against MAID, but to determine how we move forward together now that MAID is part of the Canadian uh, healthcare scheme. My primary concern is the health and well-being of patients, and I'm sure that's your concern too. It's a common goal for all of us, and I think we can all agree uh, that patients and families should have meaningful choices at end of life, uh, no matter where they live in Canada, so that they can have access to palliative care. Now, as you can tell, I'm quite open about my faith, and it will be interwoven throughout my presentation. Working in palliative care, you're probably familiar with the body, um, body, mind, and spirit characterization or categorization. Uh, and this is really treating the whole patient. And so I believe that we should be open and honest with each other about our faith perspectives and where we're coming from. My faith is as much part of who I am as my sexual orientation, gender, or ethnicity. And even though I know you probably won't agree with me on everything that I believe, uh, nevertheless, I'm certain uh, that we, even though we disagree on particular issues, uh, that we can count on mutual respect to help us to work together. I will present this talk in four sections. First, I want to share with you a true story from my own life, which will help you to understand uh, my perspective on the importance of palliative care. 
me talking about my father's end of life experience and how I was involved with that and what I learned from that experience. And I think that uh, if you will indulge me, this personal story from my own life will help us all uh, develop the categories uh, and the basic uh, outline so that we can understand some of the issues we face today in palliative care. Next, I'd like to talk about human dignity. What is its source? How can we bring dignity to others at end of life? The last point underlines the nobility of your vocation because that's what you're all about. In this section, I'm going to talk a bit about the work of Dr. Harvey Max Rachinov, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. I want to do some polling with you to determine what your thoughts are on the availability of quality palliative care in Canada including the type of therapeutic interventions that Dr. Chachanov describes in his book, Dignity Therapy, Final Words for Final Days, published in 2011. Finally, I'm going to introduce you to the No Options, No Choice campaign that is being jointly undertaken by CMDA Canada and CHPCA. The goal of the campaign is to advocate for increased levels of government services for palliative care robust support for people with disabilities, and increased mental health services. I hope that we will leave today's session recommitted to addressing both the current and future needs of patients and their loved ones for end-of-life care so that people will have real choices at end of life. Since I've been hired here at CMD Canada, made and end-of-life care have been an important part of my work. We've advocated for protection for healthcare professionals, who can't participate in MAID, and for increased palliative care services. I was prepared for this role in many ways, but the most personal and profound preparation was when my own father made a plea for euthanasia in 2009, some three years before I accepted this role. Now, my father's request was uncharacteristic for a man of tremendous optimism and faith, and came near the end of his life when his belief in himself and his belief in his usefulness, usefulness to others seemed to fail. My dad was born in April of 1929, just months before the stock market crash that triggered the Great Depression. Despite the impact of the crash, my father led a very happy childhood in Fredericton, uh, part of a tight-knit family, and it seemed that he carried this sunny view of life throughout his whole, his whole life. And it was certainly fueled by his faith in God. My father's motivation throughout his life was to help people. He met and married my mother, Betty, in 1955. Uh, she was a nurse who cared for children who suffered from polio. He enjoyed a successful career as a life insurance salesman and credited much of his success to, um, to my mother's influence. I remember them as always being in love. We had a happy family. I remember my father's being lenient, quick to forgive, generous, and fun-loving. Perhaps his only weakness was being frequently late for appointments. My father was very involved in his church. When he was 20, he began being an usher in the church, and he carried that on for 60 years, finally retiring when he was 80. He also served as a deacon for a while in the church. In his late 70s, sadly, health problems threatened my father's life. He had uh, been diagnosed with squamous cell skin cancer in the bowl of his right ear. 
And originally I underreacted because it was squamosal after all. And the feeling was that the a plastic surgeon could remove it. Well, he had the operation and unfortunately he could re not remove all of it. And eventually it became unoperable. There were a period of two years from the time that he was diagnosed uh, till the time that he passed away. And any of you who have ever dealt with this type of injury, uh, illness, know that it can be very serious and the impact can be significant. I don't wanna sugarcoat the experience of those two years because it was a terrible cancer and he had a terrible time. Eventually, as the uh, tumor eroded the side of his face, a large bandage was required to stop the discharge that flowed from the wound. Still, he visited friends at coffee shops, church, and the service clubs to which he belonged. But finally, the care at home was too much for my mother to deal with, and he went to hospital. Now, this was the most difficult period of my father's life, without a doubt. He hated hospitals. He hated silence. He hated sitting still. But he never complained. I'm sure it bothered him to see my mother traveling to the hospital every day, and I'm positive he was concerned about my brother, sister, and I traveling long distances to see him. While he felt very little physical pain, his view of himself shifted from someone who always looked after others uh, in helping others to someone who, in his eyes, was only a burden. I didn't see my father's crisis coming. I never questioned his value as a person. That was just an assumption for me. But my father was afraid. One day during a meeting with the palliative care physician, my dad asked for help. As the conversation continued, it became clear he wanted the doctor to end his life. Now, I was stunned by this, but determined not to react. While there are circumstances when Christian patients need to be clearly informed by their spiritual supports that it's morally wrong, according to their faith, to consent to ending their own life, I heard and understood my dad's request for early death as a cry for help. The physician, who was a Christian and a member of CMDA Canada, of course, had to decline my father's request because in 2009, euthanasia had not yet been legalized. Today, it is entirely possible my father could have been assessed by a physician and provided my dad was deemed to be competent, which I'm sure he would have been, his request would likely have been approved. And because there's no waiting period now, my father's life could have ended that very day, possibly without his family even knowing of the request. And the rest of his story would never have been told. I was very dismayed when I left my dad and the hospital that day. I prayed, I asked God how I could help my father at this very low point in his life. Later on, sitting by his bedside, I asked him, Dad, why is it that you feel you want to end your life? I was surprised how quickly he answered. He said, it's because I can't help anyone anymore. I spent a long time listening 
and talking to him about this concern and this issue. And in the weeks that followed, we had lots of conversations about him realizing how much we loved him and how much our need to love him was actually him loving us. He needed to learn to receive love from us and from his friends, and he needed to allow us the joy of giving to him. Too often, sadly, in our culture, we find value in our lives in what we can do, what we can produce, and not in who we are. His suffering was never physical because the medication controlled the pain very well. His suffering was emotional and existential as he was stripped bare of all of his independence and really his self-image. He was forced to rely on others and on God. I also did my best to take him for outings and to point out all the ways that he was still helping people. The result was healing and life-giving for him and for all who loved him. And I will always remember fondly all of the beautiful times we shared in those last important weeks of his life. Dad had made a donation to help pay for a large renovation project at his church. He told me one day how much he wished he could see the new space. His minister and I arranged to take Dad, catheter and all, to the church to see the results of the project. On the way out of the door of the hospital that day, Dad encountered a man sitting alone on a bench. My father knew the man. He said his name and offered his condolences for the recent loss of the man's wife. I saw how my father's compassion touched the heart of that grieving man. The congregants who were at the church were amazed to see my very ill father and responded like they were seeing Lazarus risen from the dead. When he returned to hospital later that day, I reminded him about all the people he had helped just on that day alone. Later, in Dad's final weeks, a pastor from another church asked if he could come and visit him. Dad had encouraged this man many years before when he had experienced a vocational crisis. My father welcomed him to his bedside. The pastor left that visit in tears, amazed that my father was more concerned about the pastor's problems than he was about his own imminent passing. Most of all, my dad allowed us to love him in his time of need. For me, this was the greatest gift of all. I would often help the church nurses change his bandages, giving something back for all he had done for me. I knew that my God identifies with those who are sick and suffering. So while I was cleaning the wound, I was aware that I was tending to the wounds of Christ. This was a profound and deeply important privilege for me. I will never forget it. Other family members, such as my sister, brother, and their families came home for extended periods to be with him and to care for him. We were all blessed by this time, even though it was sometimes painful. Years later, both my mother's pastor and I agreed that my mother's period of grief was lessened because of the extra time she shared with my father. Throughout it all, my father maintained his sense of humor. One day I asked him, Dad, how will I know when you get to heaven? He said, easy, I'll come back. At the time, I thought it was the morphine talking. 
Little did I know that he was serious. After living through my father's story, I am haunted by the thought of people who have no one to help them find meaning in their last days. I am concerned especially with those living in poverty, with disabilities, those who have mental health issues, and for people who are isolated and lonely, for those in prison and so many others who are members of marginalized communities. When their spirits lag and when they're tempted to give up, who'll be there to encourage them and to serve them? I believe there is an important role for churches in Canada to reach out to the lonely and isolated members of their communities, not just of their churches, but in the surrounding areas who are at end of life to support them in this difficult time. I also feel that society has a moral responsibility to provide quality services and supports. Dad's funeral, when it did arrive, was sad, as they always are, but held a strong undercurrent resurrection joy amid those old beautiful hymns. His grandchildren read the scripture. I gave the eulogy. And as the choir rose to sing, it is well with my soul, a lovely and strong beam of light illuminated my family. It streamed into the church through the face of Christ in the stained glass window in the balcony and landed like a miracle on that first pew comforting us with its warmth and light. My brother, who does not attend church, held my mother's hand and said, Dad is here. We took that as a sign from the Lord that Dad had been perfectly on time for his final appointment with God. When I stopped to reflect on my dad's experience at end of life, I realized what a fleeting thing human dignity is. My father, faced with a dismal prognosis and a disfiguring illness, briefly lost the sense of his own dignity and worth. But I'm convinced that he regained it even in deeper ways when he chose to live his life until the end. As a Christian, I believe that human dignity ultimately comes from God. And many followers of other faith traditions would share this conviction. Human dignity must never be defined solely by the state because there are too many examples in human history of state-sanctioned cruelty and eugenics based upon artificial definitions of human worth and dignity. And sadly, many of these things have happened here in Canada. We may all disagree about the source of human dignity, but I would imagine that we are all dedicated to preserving dignity since this is such an important foundation of palliative care. But there is also a sense in which the experience of our own dignity is subjective as well. We all go through periods when we have a sense of our own dignity and periods in which we don't. Also from my father's experience, I learned that the behavior of those who care for us, those around us, can affect our awareness of our own dignity. Now, I want to acknowledge I am far from being an expert on these issues, but I was uh, very, very uh, impressed and edified uh, by the writings of a real expert, Dr. Harvey Max Chachanov, who was a senior scientist at Cancer Care Manitoba Research Institute, uh, Cancer Care Manitoba, and a co-founder of the Canadian Virtual Hospice. I'm sure you're all aware of Dr. Chachanov and his work. I 
particularly looked at his 2011 book, Dignity Therapy, Final Words for Final Days. Uh, what I discovered is that what I experienced with my father is not an isolated phenomenon and that we can each have a role in restoring dignity to each other. In chapter one of his book, Dr. Chachanov describes his model of dignity in the terminally ill, which is based upon patient data from a study conducted by his team. I'm paraphrasing here, but the section is worth a read for anyone involved in palliative care. And as I said, I'm sure many of you are already familiar with this, but I was pleased in the way he summarized it in just a few pages. Um, and I think for people like myself who are, you know, working in chaplaincy, um, material like this is extremely helpful. Uh, this model indicates there are pre three primary sources that influence patient dignity. Dignity can be affected by illness-related concerns, which are factors that come from the illness itself, such as physical and psychological responses. Dignity can also be affected by what he calls dignity-conserving repertoire. These are both perspectives and practices that were observed, which influence a sense of patient dignity. These factors are often found within the patient's psychological makeup, personal background, and life experiences. Finally, external factors in the patient's social environment also influence the patient's sense of their own dignity. Dr. Chachanov refers to these factors as the social dignity inventory. After dis discussing each of these factors that influence patient dignity in the first part of his book, he identifies dignity-related questions and therapeutic interventions for each factor. Now, these charts are found on pages 38 to 40 of his book, and I've excerpted them in the following slides. I'm going to show you in a minute. Uh, and I, again, I would really uh, recommend if you if you don't have that, that pages 38 to 40, somewhere close where you can use them as a reference, I think they're absolutely golden. So I'm going to just switch now and... Um, move to the slides where I've summarized some of Dr. Chachanov's work. Now, uh, the uh, genius of Dr. Chachanov in this area, I think, is the fact that he's able to put everything in a chart, which makes life a lot easier. Um, I just want to go through these. Uh, his chart has three columns, the factors and the sub-themes. These are the concerns that people have about dignity. Uh, and then he has a set of questions that the uh, that the therapist can use to get at some of these concerns, and then some interventions that he recommends. So I'm just going to quickly run through these. Again, I'm sure you're very aware of them. It's a standard for palliative care in Canada, but nevertheless, I want to just uh, go through in case anyone isn't aware of them or in case people need a refresher. Uh, physical distress. Uh, the therapeutic interventions are vigilance to symptom management, frequent assessment, application of comfort care. Psychological distress, assume a supportive stance, empathetic listening, referral to counseling. Medical uncertainty, where the patient is uncertain about the future. Upon request, provide accurate, understandable information and strategies to deal with possible future crises. Independence, have patients participate in decision-making, regarding both medical and personal issues. Cognitive acuity, 
treat delirium, and when possible, avoid sedating medication. Functional capacity, use orthotics, physiotherapy, and occupational therapy. Now he's moving into the dignity-conserving repertoire. Factors like continuity of self. Acknowledge and take interest in those aspects of the patient's life that he or she most values. See the patient worthy of honor, respect, and esteem. Role preservation. Asking the patient what activities are most important to you and what activities can the patient continue. Maintenance of pride. What about yourself are you most proud of? It can help the patient to focus on that instead of the illness that they have. Hopefulness. Encourage or enable the patient to participate in meaningful or purposeful activities. For instance, me taking my dad to the church was extremely meaningful and purposeful. Autonomy control. Involve the patient in treatment and care decisions. Generative or legacy. A life project. Audio tapes, letters, journaling, dignity, psychotherapy. And this is where Dr. Chachanov uh, goes into uh, more detail uh, around uh, writing. You know, he does a lot of work on the therapy of asking patients to write stories about their life, et cetera, et cetera. And he has studies on that that are very, very helpful and interesting. Acceptance, support the patient in his or her outlook, encourage doing things that enhance a sense of well-being and resilience and fighting spirit. Which part of you is strongest right now? Dignity conserving practices on the part of the patient, learning to live in the moment, allow the patient to participate in normal routines or take comfort in momentary distractions. Maintaining normalcy, are there things you still enjoy doing on a regular basis? Finding spiritual comfort, make referrals to a chaplain or to a spiritual leader, allow the patient to participate in particular spiritual or culturally based practices. And finally, the social dignity inventory. Uh, looking at the way the patient is being treated uh, in within the care context, privacy boundaries. Respect the patient, ask permission to examine the patient, proper draping to safeguard and respect privacy, social support, liberal visitation and rooming in policies. Care tenor, treat the patient as worthy of honor, esteem and respect, adopt a stance conveying this. Burden to others, encourage explicit discussion about these concerns with those they fear that they are burdening. This can be very helpful in my experience because the fear of being a burden to others is a very common fear amongst the patients that I see in my work as a chaplain. And aftermath concerns, encourage the settling of affairs, preparation of advanced directive, making a will and funeral planning. I remember my dad, his pastor, and my mother planning dad's funeral and and they actually, believe it or not, really uh, enjoyed that experience. It was, uh, it was very life-giving. Clearly, Dr. Chachanov's thesis is that patient dignity has clearly defined sources that specific questions and therapeutic interventions can enhance patient dignity. Now, it's interesting, I was struck reading this list uh, how much crossover there was between the list provided by Dr. Chachanov and the reasons for suffering that are listed in the annual MAID report published by Health Canada. Loss of dignity, for instance, was cited by 54.3% of people who received MAID in 2021. 
a perceived burden on family and friends and caregivers was cited by 35.7%. And the loss of ability to engage in meaningful activities came in at 86.3%. Inadequate control of pain or concern about it affected 57.6% of people. Now, you can take a look at that list yourself, but I think there is a fair argument that almost every one of the reasons for suffering listed in the main report could be addressed by Dr. Chachanov's therapeutic interventions. And I think the question we must now ask ourselves is whether these interventions are being applied in cases in which people have chosen made, or at least are headed in that direction? Or have these interventions been used to encourage a patient to find alternatives to choosing MAID? Now, I believe that these are good questions to be asking. We know that there will always be people who will not want the interventions, even if they're offered. And people will choose MAID for a variety of reasons. That's just a fact of the law in Canada today. There will also be people, however, who might have used the interventions if they are available, and it might have changed their mind about that course of action. Uh, I'm thinking of my father, and I'm just wondering that if that had happened in today, uh, and he had those interventions, he may, I think, would be likely he would change his mind about wanting to die. Now, if this is the case, if this assumption is correct, then lives could be saved with these interventions that have been listed by Dr. Chachanov. Now, I have to say right up front, we need studies on this question to know for sure. And these studies would be difficult to organize because we would need to hear from patients who may have already had made administered uh, shortly after they had made their decision. And we'd also have to hear from people who had previously considered or wanted made who changed their mind because of the interventions. Nevertheless, I think it's important to determine this. And it will determine, you know, uh, much about how we administer made in Canada. Now, in the absence of studies, I'd like to take a straw poll. Uh, now, this is absolutely no scientific effect. I just want to caution you, but I'm interested in what you think what your subjective feelings are. Uh, each of you has the capacity to respond confidentially to a poll on the platform. It is subjective and inexact, but it's a helpful gauge of your attitudes and experience. Uh, now, uh, I'm gonna, there are three questions. I'm gonna ask you to answer each of these questions as they come up on your screen. Uh, but I'd like you to remember that the questions are that the first question is based on the community in which you work. And remember that the operative question is had access to. So the question is whether patients had access to these, uh, these strategies, uh, not whether they use them, but whether they had access to them. So they may very well have been offered and not accepted by the patients. Okay, so for the first uh, question, uh, it's an interesting uh, mix of 7% say 100% would have access, 23 uh, say that uh, 75 to 99% would have access, 29% said 50 to 74, uh, for 9%, uh, 25 to 49, and 32% would say less than 24%. Okay, well, thank you. That's very, very helpful. It's a straw poll and uh, uh, hopefully uh, we can keep those numbers because that'd be very helpful uh, in future.
uh, in the uh, second question, current estimates are that between 30 to 50% of Canadians have access to quality palliative care. Uh, uh, this estimate is high in my community, so that would be 41%. Uh, so uh, you would be saying that um, uh, you would think that 30 to 50% uh, would be a high number in your community. And in 59% of cases, you would say that would be low in your community. In other words, there would be higher levels of access. We would generally, I think, expect there to be higher levels of access in your community because you work in palliative care. Uh, number three, do you think that the estimate of access to quality palliative care is high or low in your province? So uh, here, I guess this is to be expected that 52% would say that it's low in your province and 48% would say uh, that it is high in your province. So uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully Tanya can save those results because those would be extremely helpful to us. Um, Brenna Larry just wanted to comment that um, she put in the chat room that she thinks the COVID regulations have had a huge impact on a poll like this one. So that's yes. a consideration as well. Just in that, yes, absolutely. That's something to keep uh, keep in mind as well. Uh, I had heard anecdotal stories uh, about the pressure that people have been under during COVID and the impact that has had on patients who've been considering MAID. Um, so uh, that should, generally speaking, concern us as well. Thank you very much for answering those polls. I think it's fair to say that there's, I think it's an understatement to say that there's, generally speaking, not enough palliative care available in Canada. We need to have more palliative care available in Canada in order to provide quality palliative care and are to provide the interventions that people need, especially when they're considering issues of end of life. Um, and I think I would say that if these types of interventions are not being regularly offered to patients, then it is possible that if they were offered, more patients would choose to live because their sense of dignity has been restored. This also underlines the important role of hospice and palliative care because it means that if we can use these skills and employ them, it's possible we could be saving a life. Here I wanna to refer to Romain Gallagher, Dr. Romain Gallagher's September 2020 article for Medical Hypotheses, where she argues that some requests for hasten death due to disease burden and distress are driven by lack of access to quality palliative care. And she feels that this amounts to a medical error. If patients are not being offered these interventions, then it's important to understand why. It could be because there are insufficient palliative care resources available. And what we understand as a potentially effective dignity enhancing interventions for a person at end of life may not be well known by the public or by politicians who are making these decisions. Uh, I have to tell you um, that until this experience happened to me with my my father, I would never have understood this. Um, I think part of the problem is the Canadian public was introduced to MAID through people like Gloria Taylor, Dr. Don Lowe in Toronto. They have seen people who are very adept, very smart, very capable, have good family support, have had a long time to think about this, and have come to a conclusion. And what Canadians don't understand is, is that many people uh, 
are ambivalent. Many people are vulnerable. Uh, many people are easily influenced uh, by all kinds of things, things they see in the news media, things from family, things even from unconsciously signals given by uh, caregivers and hospitals. And in actual fact, we have to be much, much, much more careful to ensure that people have the counseling that they need uh, to be able uh, to do what is right for them. Now, it could also be, and here I'm just making suppositions. I don't know whether this is accurate, but I have heard anecdotes to this effect that made it somehow prioritized within the healthcare system as it as it is appears to be driven by legal requirements. I've heard anecdotes about palliative care clinicians being afraid to dialogue with the patient who has either asked for an assessment or been assessed about their motivation for MAID and because the palliative care physician is worried they might be accused of obstructing access to MAID by the patients. Now, it's undoubtable that the advent of MAID has made the practice of patient care much more complicated. But it needs to be remembered that the original just judge in the Carter case found that the medical community was divided on the ethics of MAID. There are some members of the medical community who feel that it's ethical and others who don't. And the court decision didn't change that. Um, and to change the criminal code, the legislation didn't change that. The legal change merely allowed patients who met the criteria to have their lives ended by a willing physician without it being considered mur murder in the legal sense. And medical professionals are free to have a medical ethic that living is a preferable state to dying. Um, that's the Hippocratic Oath. Uh, they must ensure that the patient consents to the intervention. In other words, you can't be forcing someone to do interventions that they don't want to do. And they need to be sure that the patient knows how to access a MAID assessment if they want one. But other than that, with patient consent, they should be free to propose alternatives to MAID, uh, I would think, at any time of the process, right up to the point that MAID is performed, with the patient's consent, mind you. Uh, the counseling and interventions with the patient as described by Dr. Chachanoff really form part of an informed consent, which is part of the criteria for MAID. And going from the Ontario College policy, it says, you must provide informed consent to receive MAID after having been informed of the means available to relieve their suffering, including palliative care. And sometimes this information is not just, you know, you can get palliative care, you know, but it, it could be actually defining uh, a process of home care, palliative care, so that the patient is assured that they have the services available when they go home. If these interventions are explained to the patient and the patient consents to them, uh, then it's hard to imagine how a palliative care professional could be faulted for a delay or even a patient's change of plans. Nevertheless, I am hearing stories that this is happening. The criminal code did not suspend the foundation uh, for, uh, of medical ethics uh, that it is important to save lives. As a matter of fact, when the justice who decided the original case in BC was asked to consider the documented irregularities in the Flanders region in Belgium, she dismissed those concerns, stating that the culture of Canadian medicine was such that the problems of the European system were unlikely to happen here. Now, the reason she said that 
was because of the strong ethical basis of the Canadian system to protect and preserve life, which would make made an exception to the rule only to be used in the minority of cases outlined in the legislation. But the serious question we need to answer is the following. Given the way criteria can be interpreted over time, they tend to expand with individual precedents. And we also see that the overall scope of MAID is expanding to include uh, persons with disabilities, persons with uh, chronic illness, persons with mental health, and now uh, mature minors and people with advanced directives. So as MAID becomes more and more accepted in the future, will it become a planned outcome of healthcare? And will alternatives even be considered necessary? The danger is that as the cultural taboo against suicide is undermined, will there still be a motivation to provide alternatives to MAID? Sadly, we know that the healthcare system is out of money and needs money, more money, more additional resources. Will the pressures, the financial pressures of the healthcare system, drive us to an overdependence on MAID, or will MAID become a pressure valve for a system that is overburdened and under resourced? Sadly, we know that MAID is cheaper than providing care, support, and the necessities of life for those with life threatening illnesses, those with disabilities, and those with mental health concerns. All of this points to the importance of giving hospice and palliative care a higher profile among the Canadian population. Ironically, the introduction of MAID has made this clear. And it may be that the huge demand for MAID is just more evidence of the urgent need for quality palliative care. But as I said before, most Canadians are not aware of this problem. Recently, the Canadian Hospice and Palliative Care Association and our organization, CMDA Canada, launched a social media campaign to start a Canadian dialogue about the need for additional resources for palliative care, support for people with disabilities, and services for those with mental illness. The name of this project is No Options, No Choice. It is a website and a series of videos that help people understand some of the issues we've been discussing today. More information can be found on your handout that was given to you as part of this presentation. And in a minute, I'm going to be putting a slide up on the screen that has a QR code that you can use that will take you directly to our website. We really encourage you to go to our website and to write a letter to your provincial, legis uh, provincial politicians. It can be done automatically on the website in about five minutes. You can write a letter to your provincial politicians calling for increased resources. We made plans earlier this week to go to Ottawa in February and to do lobbying there as well. By adding your name and signing, you'll be able to be automatically on a petition that will go to federal politicians to increase funding for palliative and hospice care. And, you, and, if, and if you believe in this cause, you believe in what we're doing, you can even uh, spread this information to your friends and family and get them to write as well. Uh, currently, I'm pleased to say that we're up to over 1,500 people are on the database, and in excess of 1,300 letters have all but already been sent to provincial politicians 
in the first two weeks of the program. Our videos follow four patients, two with mental health concerns, one who is living with a disability and one with a life-threatening illness. In addition, there are two videos featuring physicians who are concerned that we are not doing enough as a society to provide alternatives to MAID. Two of the doctors featured in this project are palliative care physicians, Dr. Margaret Cottle from Vancouver and Dr. Patrick Vinay from Montreal. Uh, now, I'd originally intended to show you a video. Unfortunately, I'm short of time. So I think what I'll do is just close off my presentation. The videos are all available on the website for you to take a look at. So um, currently, a joint parliamentary committee is studying MAID and the state of palliative care in Canada. Recently, Abby Hoffman, Executive Advisor, Strategic Policy for Health Canada, stated that a lack of palliative care was not linked to people choosing MAID. She undoubtedly formed her opinion from statistics gathered in the Health Canada MAID report that indicated that just above 80% of people who received MAID in 2021 had received palliative care. And roughly 50.7% had received palliative care for one month or more prior to their death. But the quality of the palliative care was never defined. And the question for us is, was it sufficient? And were the interventions provided by Dr. Chachanov even offered to patients? In conclusion, the legalization of MAID in 2016 created a sea change for your specialty. Some very basic foundational concepts have been turned upside down for you, and my heart goes out to you. I've heard people talk about uh, moral injury uh, as a result of what you've been going through. And, and I don't doubt that that is the case when you add all of these things together and you add in COVID-19 in your response to that. Nevertheless, I don't have to tell you that your work has become more crucial than ever. As the son of a father who wanted made at one point in his illness, I know how important it is to have someone there in healthcare who will employ all methods short of obstruction, to ensure that there is true informed consent. I am able to look back at my father's illness with happiness that our family was able to support him in doing what was right for him. Palliative care played an important role in all of that. There's always a fear that someone will construe a cry for help as a desire to die with all the implications that brings with it. Your presence is crucial for safety and protection of patients and families to make sure that a patient's worst day is not their last day. Sadly, it means that in some cases you will offer help which will not be utilized and the patient will decide to choose MAID. Uh, but you will have done your best to preserve and protect life. And in the end, that's all anyone can ask. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the CMDA Canada podcast. Watch for more content in this space coming soon.